Deneen and I dated for six years before this happened. Isn't that nice? She has no idea that I was going to do that to her this morning, so just so you know, right? Uh, we, we, had this, uh, we had this long uh, dating relationship. We were high school sweethearts, right? Uh, love at first sight, knew that this was what God was going to do, right? All kinds of really cool things. And uh, back in that time, we, we, we finished high school, we went to separate colleges, and we had a, a somewhat long-distance relationship, but that was back in the day, like before the internet, Right? Anybody remember those days? Right? Yeah. So, so those were the days when in college I had to stand in line to get a payphone with my jar of quarters to call her. And the operator came on every like three minutes and said, you got to put more money in the phone. Right? And so that's what we did. And that was the relationship we had. But as that relationship matured and pro- pro- progressed, we, we got to a place of a two-year engagement. I'm not suggesting two-year engagements. But uh, the, the, we had a two-year engagement. And some point in that two-year year engagement, we had a conversation about what the verses would be that would be read and preached at our wedding ceremony. I remember nothing about the conversation, but I do remember this. I remember the conclusion of that conversation. We said we would have Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 through 16, read and preached by Dr. Bob at our wedding. A cool aside, this is just parenthesis for glory to God. When we called Bob, he was in California at the time, uh, trying to save the world. Um, so he was in Cal- but we, we called Bob and we said, hey, it's Colossians 3, 12 through 16. And he was really silent on the other end of the phone. He goes, that is so strange. Debbie just finished writing a song for your wedding specifically and the base of it was Colossians 3, 12 through 16, and they didn't even know that, right? So that's kind of a cool, cool moment, right, in, in, in doing it. So, so, hon, if you thought that I had forgotten and didn't mention that last week when we read the text, I, I was saving it for this week. But why this text? Well, we'll go back and look at the text really quick. There's a lot that I have to say today, and I know it's communion. I hope the crockpot's on low. Are you ready? Going back to, this is from last week, but this was what was read at our wedding. It says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful, and let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, or even in this marriage, do everything, doesn't say that, but it's implied, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Right? Super wedding verses. So if any of you have any uh, twinkling ideas of uh, proposing soon, that would be great, right? To be in your marriage. Well, Paul thought so too. The Apostle Paul, even though he wasn't married, thought that was a perfect application in marriage. That in our marriages, we would put death to sin and dress for holiness. In marriage and in family. And and so this week, as we move to these next verses, I, I want us to hear that as it plays out. Paul says, this is how you should live your lives. And here, let me apply it to this. Marriage. 
I read it in a commentary this week, and, and this is really the thought to hang your hat on for the week. I try to do this for you, right, um, at times in which you can, uh, if you don't hear anything else, hear this, right? But I, th- this is a great quote that I think undergirds what we talk about this morning. It says this, Because our relationship with God has changed through Christ, our relationship with those around us must change for Christ. So we're going to hang our hat on today, right? You'll hear that again. So as we go there, let's remember some things from the journey that we've been on so far in this book, the book of Colossians. Paul first started with a prayer, and he said, Listen, I pray that you're filled with the fullness of God through Christ, that you would know all wisdom and knowledge of God, and that in knowing it, you might walk in a manner that's worthy of the Lord. That was his prayer for the Colossae church. And and then he went on in chapter 1, and he begins to talk about the greatness of Christ, that he was before all things, and in him all things hold together. And then comes the astounding news in chapter 2 of the gospel, that we've been reconciled with God through Christ. And in him uh, we have been buried uh, with our sin and risen again in his resurrection. In fact, he says, you who were dead in your trespasses, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all your trespasses. This he set aside by nailing it to the cross. So get this. Paul is telling the church in Colossae, listen, your identity is this. You are in Christ, hidden with Christ, buried with Christ, risen with Christ. This is who you are. And then he gets to the so, and it's a big so, right? According to all of that, that's all the really good theology. Christ is amazing, and you are in him. Good news. So, if this is true, if we've been given the gift of life while deserving death, and our identity is now in Christ, then, last week, we are to put to death our sin and dress for holiness. What D.A. Carson, I said last week, calls grace-driven effort. Not an effort to make our way to God, but an effort that comes as a result of what God has done for us. And then, this morning, look where Paul turns to for application. He's going to turn to marriage. He's going to turn to families. He's going to turn to hard relationships in our lives. I think he does that for two reasons. Two reasons, real quickly. The first is this, that these relationships will bear the most fruit. When when it says, walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, if we can do that in these relationships, we'll bear more fruit than in any other place in our lives. That if we get it here, that maybe we can indeed change the world. Secondly, because I think it's the hardest place to apply them, right? Because you can't fake it till you make it on this, right? If there's anybody that knows me better than anybody on the planet, it's my wife, right? So I can, I can fool all of you, but I, I can't fool her, right? Right? So if I'm talking about putting sin to death and dressing myself in righteousness, the hardest place to apply that is with the people that are closest to me. My wife, my kids... My grandkids. So, uh, two reasons. Because it's going to bear the most fruit, but, it, but, it's, but it's also the hardest place. Now, did Danita and I realize all of that when we picked those verses for our wedding? She might have, because she's a lot more spiritually mature than I am, and a lot brighter than I am. But I didn't. But now, 32 and a half years later, I'm beginning to catch on. And I'm hoping that this morning you might join me in that journey. I want to take all of that 
and then hear this text. Because sometimes we take this text and we just kind of rip it out of its context, but I want you to hear it in what we've learned. That's how Paul intends it. Colossians chapter 3, starting at verse 18. You ready for this? Colossians chapter 3, verse 18. It's page 984 of your pew Bibles. Here's the application. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Bondservants, Obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. That whatever you do, work heartily, as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, Treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Oh, may God help us in the very fast understanding of these words this day. A caveat as we start this morning. I feel the need to say this. Um, I'm going to go out on a limb a bit, but my guess is that there is some in here this morning as we read that text who are thinking of someone other than themselves. Some of you already get it. Your smiles make you guilty, right? I just want you to know. Listen, it it might be that you're sitting there praying going, oh dear God, today is the day my husband is going to hear these words. Pastor Rick's going to lay it on him. And this is going to be so good because my husband's going to get it. Oh Lord, pray. I pray that his ears are open, that his heart is nimble, that he might get it. Can I... Can I just ask you, if, if, if you're praying for someone else this morning as we read those words, that you just silently rebuke yourself in the name of Jesus? Because listen, Paul did not write these words so that you could put a guilt trip on somebody on the way home today. He wrote these words, listen, so that you might actually ask forgiveness on the way home today. These are for you. I know the person sitting next to you is as screwed up as the day is long, right? But these words are for you. You ready? How does God apply death to sin and life in Christ? Dressing for holiness. Well, there's grace-driven effort in our marriages. Verses 18 and 19, Paul first applies this. and, And the priority is important. He first applies this in our marriages. Wives, he says... Submit to your husbands. That's not politically correct. That's not socially correct. That's not culturally correct. It's nothing but biblically correct. With me? Now, to get this, ladies, because this is directed at you, so no amen from the husbands, right? Uh, get this. We, we, in order to get it, we need to go back to Genesis 3.16 real quick. You know what's happening there, right? Adam and Eve have done the one thing that God said not to do in the midst of thousands of things that they could do, right? And sin has come. And God, in Genesis 3.16, is laying out the specifics of the death that they must now live as a result of their sin. And God says to Eve, 
I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Many of you know in this room that that is true. I know this true. I was a witness to it twice. It really looked like it hurt. Right? But what else does God say? He says also, because that's the one we always remember. What else? He says, your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Now, now that can be a confusing statement. So uh, lean in a minute. Remember, this is the punishment. So desire for your husband can't be that you'll think he's cute. Right? It's not what, it's not what God's talking about. More so, we are to read here that part of the punishment, the reality of sin has brought on the woman, is that women are going to live in angst with the creation order of coming under their husbands. That's, that's part, of the, part of the punishment to women is that they'll live in angst to the creation order that their husbands are to be leaders of the home. And, and listen, the order hasn't changed The man has still the role of leadership. This is what God has made him for. Where the punishment comes is that the woman is going to internally battle against this. And God says that's a bad thing. So, Paul's grace-driven directive in Colossians for wives is to submit to their husbands in a return to how he created it in the first place. But listen, it's one that demands help. It will require God's grace because sin has brought angst to this process. Submission, submission, which really means coming under, right, is not the default setting for you ladies. It's not what comes naturally. You understand what I mean by default? Like it, it, to take it back to where it, it, it originates, right? Th- this is not something that comes naturally. Submission is something that you need help with. You need God's grace for Because it's a result of the fall. So you have to battle against that. Which takes us back to our text from last week, right? We are to put to death the things that are in our sinful default. And we are to dress ourselves with holiness. So ladies, if you're asking this morning, how do I rightly submit to my husband as is fitting in the Lord? It is this. With compassion. With kindness. With humility, meekness, and patience. Bearing with him because we know he is far from perfect. Forgiving him because we know he screws up more than he gets it right. Love him and let peace rule in your relationship. And be thankful for him. Grace-driven effort towards submission. Now guys, wake up. Hear your part. Husbands, Love your wives. Uh, The Greek here in Colossians for love is agapao. It comes from agape love. Many of you know the, the four different loves. This agape love is a love as Christ has loved the church. It's expressed in a beautiful way in Ephesians 5, and I'd love to go there and read it, but I'm going to ask you to read it this afternoon, guys, uh, because it, it, it gives a much fuller understanding of what this love is like, this agape love is like, in that we not simply wouldn't be harsh with our wives, but that we would indeed love our wives as Christ loved the church. Agapa love is the, is the love that Christ has had for us, and it's the expectation that our, our grace-driven effort should be, listen, consumed with loving our wives that way. 
But we have a default as well. <laughs> and we don't necessarily find it in Genesis 3, but we find it throughout the Bibles. And quite frankly, we don't even have to go to the Bible. We just got to look in the mirror, right? I can see my own default place, right? That, that I don't love my wife as Christ loved the church. Our default is very real. We love to be selfish. We might love well once in a while, um, but let's be honest, many times when we love, it's to get something. <clears throat> like, we don't necessarily see our wives, we see the end product of what could come of our wives, right? So we've got to get over that. That's selfish. We love our wives. We need to be obsessed, filled with love for our wives as Christ loves the church. How do we do that? With compassionate hearts, gentleness, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with her because she's far from perfect, forgiving her because she messes up more than she gets it right, loving her, letting peace rule in your relationship, and being thankful for her. You see it? There's a book written by Emerson Egeritz. It's called Love and Respect. And it's a great book, but I'm going to save you some money this morning and tell you what the book's about, right? It, it's this. It, it suggests, I think rightly, that men desire respect more than anything. We, we're built in such a way that we desire respect and that women desire love. And that's the way we've been made. That's what we like. And, and it's why, like places in our text today, the call for women is submission as a form of respect, and the call for men is to sacrificially love. Dr. Egeritz suggests that when as husbands, when as husbands and wives we are following through on our grace-driven efforts to do these things, we will feed one another in greater obedience. Listen, when, when I love Deneen well, right, sacrificially, She'll respect me well. And when she respects me well, I love her well. And when I love her well, she respects me. It's like a fine oiled love machine. <laughs> right? But, but listen what happens when one of those things falls off the tracks. When, when I fail to love her sacrificially, what? She's probably going to have a little less respect for me. And when she has a little less respect for me, I probably sacrificially love her a little less. And when I don't love her well, she respects me less. And it's what Dr. Eggerts calls the crazy cycle. And pretty soon, all the pieces of our well-oiled love machine are like springs sprung in a clock, and they're laying all over the floor. And there's devastation. So what do we do in those moments? Well, somebody, somebody's got to read Colossians 3, right? Or Ephesians 5, or just the Bible. Someone's got to begin to listen to the Spirit of God and say, listen, I'm going to do what God says, that no matter whether my wife respects me or not, I'm going to love her sacrificially, because that's what God told me to do. Or, 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 or it might be you ladies that say, listen, I, I've got to change my attitude. I've got to think biblically, not because he deserves it, because he doesn't, but I'm going to respect him. 
And then we begin to put things back on the track because when respect comes, then maybe love comes. Or when love comes, maybe respect comes. And all of a sudden, we're putting together again our well-oiled love machine. You get it? When we do this and we live as well-oiled love machines, get this though, we make much of Jesus. This is Paul's point. Because if you go back to our point this morning, because our relationship with God has changed through Christ, our relationship with those around us, with our spouses, must change for Christ. You with me? There's a lot to say there. We're going to move on. Your crockpots are going. How does Paul apply grace-driven efforts in our life? He does it through marriage, but he also does it through families. Kids, wake up. Uh, I know we've been talking about your parents' well-oiled love machine. You're like, eh, gross, right? Uh, but, but, but I want you to hear something. I, I want you to wake because th- this addresses you as well. The Apostle Paul moves to you next. He says, children, obey your parents when they're right. You'd love for it to say that. But it doesn't say that, does it? Now, what, what does it say? It says, children, obey your parents in most things. No, it doesn't say that either. It says, children, obey your parents in everything. Now, I remember my youth pastor days, and we'd get to a text like this, and someone would inevitably say, so, if my dad tells me to rob a bank, I should, like, go rob a bank. Which gets a very long stare from me. It says, what do you think? No. Right. So that goes without saying, right? If it's outside of the standard of God, then there's still respect for your parents, but don't, don't go rob a bank. But that's usually not going to be the case. In fact, most of the time the case is something like clean your room. And teens go, well, I can't find that in the Bible. Oh, yeah, it's right here. Children, obey your parents in everything. I would add, the first time they ask. Oh, do you hear the amens rumble through everything? Right? The point remains, when your parents ask you to do anything, you are to obey them. When they say, hey, curfew's at 10, 30, 11, or 9, or if your parents are really mean, 8, whatever, right? The reality is, is that's right. And you obey them in everything. Why? Because that's the way God has created it. The created order is that you're the kids and they're the adults. And and kids, listen, you do have a default, right? It's why you take a a toddler, right, and you put them in a a, a brand new kitchen and there's ten cabinets and the toddler automatically goes for the cabinet with poison in it, right? It's like they they, they find out what's wrong and, 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 and they're going for it. You don't have to teach Johnny how to disobey and be rebellious, Come here, Johnny, let me tell you what not to do. You don't have to do that. They get that. Children, you get that. comes naturally. And so what, what Paul is saying, listen, you need grace-driven effort to do the right thing. You need God's grace to do the right thing. But it's the right thing that indeed makes much of Jesus. Makes much of Jesus. The thing that pleases God is when we put sin to death, kids, And we put on holiness. And for you, children, this starts with obedience to your parents. Kids, listen carefully. Your parents won't always be right. Can we just say that? 
Parents, put, put your finger in your ears. I, I did say that. They, they won't always be right. But listen, in God's created order, he did not make you judge and jury over your parents' rightness or wrongness. I screwed up as a parent a million times. But I was still right. <laughs> How do you do that, kids? With compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with your parents because we all know they're far from perfect, forgiving them because we know they'll screw up, loving them, let peace rule in your relationship and be thankful for them. Parents, you know you are not without instruction here as well. It lists fathers because dads, we are to be family leaders. But through dads, moms, you're included. It says, fathers, do not provoke your children. What does it mean to provoke your children? I will tell you from all of my years in ministry, the thing that irritates a kid more than anything and often provokes them to rebellion is hypocrisy in their father. I hear it a million times. It's when dad shows up at church and he's all smiles. He might even hold a leadership position. He's loving on people. Everybody's giving him accolades for his spirituality. But when he comes home, he's somebody completely different. So dads, how do we not provoke our children? Well, we put to death that sin and we dress ourselves in holiness. And then with grace-driven effort, We put on these things, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with your kids because we all know they are far from perfect, forgiving them because we know they'll screw up more than they get it right, that we love them, and we let peace rule in our relationship and be thankful for them. Why? Because our relationship with God has changed through Christ. And our relationship with those around us, our parents or our kids, must change for Christ. How does Paul apply grace-driven efforts in our lives, in our marriages, in our families, and then finally, grace-driven effort in hard relationships? In the book of Colossians, this application section focuses on slaves and masters more than anything. And some might be here this morning bothered by the fact that Paul does not address the evil of slavery. There are books written as to why they're bothered by the fact that Paul does not address the evil of slavery. But there's a long and good explanation for that based upon culture that we don't have time for today. And and why does Paul then spend so much time here on this issue? Well, it's because the issue of hardship between slave and master has become a major issue in the Colossae church. And again, not to spend a lot of time, but to give you a a framework of of what this means, right, is is this. Uh, The book of Colossians is a sister book with the book of Philemon. And if you're familiar with this little tiny Pauline epistle of the book of Philemon, you'll know it's written to a a master um, about his slave. You see, Philemon has had this slave, his name is Onesimus, and and he's MIA. (laughs) But in his MIA-ness, right, he found Paul. And he's converted to Christ. And he's a Christian. And he's been discipled by Paul. And so this letter to Philemon is, Hey, Mr. Philemon, I know you're massively upset with your MIA slave Onesimus, but he's here, he's become a Christian, and actually I'm sending him back. And I want you to be kind to him and compassionate to him and gentle with him. And so that's the very context, right, that Paul writes even here in Colossians. And so he writes a whole book about it in Philemon, but here he's going, Man, this is, this is important to you guys. Philemon, you need to listen up. 
when Onesimus comes back. Or, or masters, you need to listen up with regard to your slaves. Slaves, you need to listen up with regard to your masters. And so where my application would be for us this morning, it's, it's often in employers, employees. I'm not sure that's it. Where I, where I think it is is in hard relationships. And, and those hard relationships might be your marriage this morning. It might be with a kid, a child, a grown child this morning. It might be with your parents this morning. But it's in those hard relationships that God, God wants Jesus to be known and to be made much of. And so he writes at length. And the answer very simply is the same. In those relationships, you need to put to death the things that are earthly and dress yourself in holiness. And do this knowing that it not only will bring healing to the relationship, but it will make much of Jesus. Now, in these verses, there are a couple of nuggets that we need to see that apply to all of the above. Our marriages, our families, and our hard relations. They're a sermon unto themselves, but here they are quickly. We are to do this not by way of eye-pleasers or people-pleasers, but with sincerity of heart and fearing the Lord. Right? We don't make our marriages better so that everybody goes, boy, look at their marriage. We don't raise good kids so that everybody wants to come to our parenting class. We do so because it's fitting in the Lord. And it shows off Jesus. Not by way of eye-pleasers or people-pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Secondly, we do these things not ultimately for people. We work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Thirdly, that when we love and respect our spouses, obey our parents, and lead our family, that when we work hard to apply grace to hard relationships, we are serving the Lord Christ. Why? Because our relationship with God has changed through Christ. Therefore, our relationship with those around us must change for Christ. Hear it. And I had 13 illustrations to close this message, but maybe this is the illustration that we need. I, 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 I totally believe this, people of God, that every verse in the Bible leads us to this table. Right? So even this issue of marriage and family, even this issue of hard relationships leads us to this table. I think it does it in two ways. And so here's the illustration. All that I've said today I fail at. There's my confession. But by the grace of God, He makes me good. It's up to Rick to be empty, but it's not up to Rick. Rick comes to this table and he's empowered to do the hard things that go against his default. So we run to this table that we might see grace in all of its beauty, that we might live in that grace for all of God's glory. Secondly, I would say this. Sometimes a message like this, and by work of the Spirit, wrecks us. I know that. Trust me, it gets to wreck me all week. It wrecks us. We, we know indeed that we've fallen far short But here's the good news of the table this morning. God knows that. 
and yet invites us here where he says, let me empower you to rebuild what is destroyed. So as we come to this table, I, I would hope that this text, along with every other text of the Bible, might cause us to run to the table. That we might see and experience grace, that we might live in that grace, that we might even be willing to be wrecked by that truth that we might be found in that grace. That we might live in our marriages and in our parenting and in the hard relationships of our lives for God's glory. Amen? Let's pray together.